Thanks for checking out the KZMC podcast. My name is April Zaire, and I'm an associate pastor at KZMC. This podcast is a recording of sermon teachings from our 9.30 a.m. Sunday morning worship gatherings. We release a new episode every Tuesday. If you're looking to check out our Sunday mornings, you can find our live stream over on our YouTube channel on Kingsfield Zurich Mennonite Church. We'd also love to have you join us in person. You can find out all the details about our Sunday mornings on our website, kzmc.ca. Thanks for listening and have a great day. I'm so glad the slide was put up this morning on <clears throat> sadness and confusion because this is not going to be a sermon on peace. It's going to be a sermon on faith. <clears throat> and so... Uh, Some of you don't like change, but you're going to have to change gears this morning real quick on this second Advent Sunday because it would take me seven or eight minutes to get ready to preach a full sermon on peace. And so we uh, stick with our faith project theme for this second Advent Sunday. I would commend you in your pursuit of a short-term pastor I have done four of those in three different conferences, and it's a time that can be very positive for congregations to work things out and discover the future path. And so I commend you for thinking about that as a possibility. I was thinking this morning as we drove across part of Ontario, my grandfather told a story of driving from Hay Township to Hespler 117 years ago and it took him all day with his horse and little wagon with a bale of hay in the back and a bucket to water the horse on the way and we whiz across here in an hour and 15 minutes and then I get thinking will my grandson come in a tenth of the time we took so we live We live in changing times. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for your goodness, for worship time, a time to reflect on something that is so much larger and bigger and greater and more awesome than anything we can imagine. And yet our hearts are tuned to God who made us, redeemed us, and now we worship. And we are grateful at this season that you came and lived among us. And we give you thanks. Amen. Five hundred and six years ago, a Roman Catholic priest was giving lectures in Germany And he had lectured through the Psalms and was beginning a series in the book of Romans. He was a tormented priest. He had incredible self-doubts about what he was doing and what he was learning. He had just finished his doctorate in theology at the university. And he knew a lot about a lot about a lot. He was a brilliant academic. And as he was teaching in the university, in the book of Romans, he came to these words in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness made that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That Roman Catholic priest later on in that year nailed a piece of paper to the church door that said 95 reasons why we need to reform the church. <clears throat> and that was known as Martin Luther's great beginning of protest about the morality in the Roman Catholic Church in 1515 in Europe. <clears throat> it was an incredible time of searching and seeking, and Luther was trying to find out how in the world he related to God as a person. And when he came on this theme in the Old Testament, Habakkuk, and then again in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, he was struck by the fact that faith is the thing that makes all the difference in all the world. And it is by faith we get to peace, and you're going to have to pick it up next Sunday or the Sunday after. Uh, there's no biblical reference for which way we put these Advent things, so uh, I think I'm not treading on anything too holy here. But we are shifting gears, and we're doing the faith one this morning. Luther had one huge problem with one thing the Roman Catholic Church was doing. It was a thing that developed in the 11th and 12th centuries, and it was called indulgences. It's a funny word. But what it was, it was a doctrine whereby the church gave incredible, incredible interest to people who had died. <clears throat> And the Roman Catholic tradition was that when you died, you went into purgatory, but you didn't have to stay in purgatory. You could go to heaven if you gave a certain amount of money to the church. <clears throat> and I was shocked. Someone just told me recently, it's still done in Catholic churches in funerals today. I was not aware of that. Anyhow, Luther was upset about that, and it was one of the 95 items on that church store that he was determined to fight. And as a result of that thesis being put on the church store, the Pope called him up and said, we gotta have a trial for this new heretic. <clears throat> and so we have that incredible story of how the trial was moved from Rome to Germany. The court was very, very sympathetic to Luther and at the end, when he was told to recant and to take back his heresy, he said, I will not, I will not, I cannot. I stand by faith alone on the word of God. And it was the beginning of who we are today as Protestants. And it was the beginning of the split from the Roman Catholic Church. And then Henry VIII in England did it in England. And today we have Protestants, we have Catholics, and we have 40,000 other groups around us with different names and different titles. Faith. Faith of a person in academia, a person who was longing to know for sure the assurance of salvation. 
and Luther struggled long and hard. Now, we, we have quarrels with the Lutherans in some areas, but uh, not so long ago, some Mennonites and some Lutherans got together and uh, had a long conversation, and there was a reconciliation that was pretty profound. And at the World Mennonite World Conference in Harrisburg 15, or five, six years ago, I chatted with a man from Europe who was part of that reconciliation team who worked out a forgiveness and a, a reconciliation that proved to be very powerful. When we talk about faith, the great texts of the New Testament are found, of course, in the book of Hebrews. And uh, if you want to turn there with your Bibles or with your devices, uh, we want to look for a few moments at some words in Hebrews chapter 11 and then at the end of the sermon in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. You have any assurance in what you do not see? <clears throat> any hope in a world that seems so twisted and torn and out of joint. And so hope and assurance about what we do not see. A couple of weeks ago, my brother in Wellesley had an old pickup truck, 18 years old, that vanished out of his driveway in the middle of the night. He woke up in the morning hoping he had a truck. When he got there, there was no truck. It was gone. <clears throat> Couldn't see it anymore. <laughs> he didn't hope for it very long because the insurance guy said, you got four days and after that we write it off. It is gone forever. Assurance and hope for what we do not see. And I'm not just talking about hoping for pickup trucks this morning. I'm thinking about things which are far bigger and better than that. Hope and assurance of something that God is doing in incredible ways. So chapter 11 of Hebrews is a list of incredible people who had a faith and a hope for the future. And it goes down through all of the history of Israel and all of the great leaders who did amazing things. Abraham was called. Young man at the age of 75, head west. An interesting thing. When I was young, a number of my older brothers and then I followed in their steps and we were young. When harvest time in the west came around, we headed west to work in the harvest in the west. And that was exciting. Abraham had this call, head west as an old man at 75. And by faith, God blessed him in that obedience and did amazing things. I add some more people to Hebrews chapter 11. And Irv and Earl, I have a book that Doris wrote and the stories in that book about our oldest son. And I want to take a couple of minutes and just share a little bit about his life of faith. 
As I mentioned last week, our four children were all born in India, and so the world, in a sense, was in their blood. And when we returned to Canada for a number of years, they would often directly and sometimes indirectly say, when are we going home? And home for them was far across the seas. Tim grew up in our family as our oldest son. We had a daughter who was older, and then our twins were born four years after Tim. But Tim had a, a mind that was serious from little up. He, uh, he loved God supremely, and uh, that was expressed in any number of ways. He loved God enough to challenge his dad one day. His dad was a pastor doing all kinds of things in a church and running here and running there and listening to people and doing things pastors do. And then my 15-year-old son said to me, Dad, you don't have any time for your family. Just out of the blue one day, just, just like that. Now, you dads who are here, <laughs> when your son talks to you like that, don't slap him on the side of the head. <clears throat> Better stop and listen carefully. Well, I stopped and I listened and I said, Tim, what are you saying? And he said, well, it's pretty simple. So I said, okay, what are we going to do? I'm not a carpenter. I didn't grow up in carpentry. But we went to town that day and we bought a little book, How to Build a Kayak. <clears throat> And step by step, over the next two years, we put together a very simple wooden frame with all of the little blocks to do the bracing and all of the stringers. And then we carefully followed the directions in the book. And we pulled the canvas over it tight and we soaked it with water to tighten it up. And then we put it all together. And you know what? It turned out really well. <clears throat> It turned out so well that we built a second one. But it was a time of connecting and listening and hearing when a son said, Dad, you've got your priorities wrong. So Tim was a special kind of guy and went to high school and he had a teacher in high school who constantly challenged him about the inequities in the world and the fighting in the world and how can we make a contribution in our world. And so at the end of college, Tim had this tremendous urge in him that he must get to Mozambique and stop the civil war there. Now, Mozambique's in South Africa on the East Coast, and he, he just had this, this urge to get there, and if he got there, somehow he thought he could stop the civil war in Mozambique. Well, after college, he talked to MCC, and the closest he could get to Mozambique was Botswana, just a little bit to the west in South Africa. And so he went to Botswana, saying, I'll be there for a while, and I'll get over to Mozambique and stop that crazy civil war. Bit of an idealist. <clears throat> and so in Botswana, he taught elementary school, and he hated it because Every once in a while, he had to send one of his bad students out to get some switches, and uh, he had to switch them, and that was a system of discipline in Botswana that he hated, but he, he did it. But while he was in Botswana, 
Tim learned the language fluently. And it's the lang while he was in Botswana, he learned Setswana, the language, and uh, learned it really, really well. He met a British fellow who was living there, who had grown up in Africa and spent his whole life there. He was not a missionary when he was young, but uh, he became a missionary later on by being self-educated, and he and Tim became good friends and did a lot of stuff together. When Tim was in college, he had any number of female friends, and uh, he brought a number of them home at different times. But he was writing to one girl in New York City while he was in Botswana, and it got more serious and more serious. And uh, finally, he said to her in a letter, I will not pursue this relationship any further, but if you are interested in me, you come out and live in a hut with no water and no electricity for one month in Botswana, and then we'll see if you're... <laughs> he didn't say it quite like this. <laughs> but if you can handle what you're going to live with if you marry me. Boy, oh boy, we couldn't believe it. We soon heard that Sandy was heading for Botswana, and she got out there and spent a month in a village, and no water, no electricity, survived. And after that, in a little restaurant up in Victoria Falls, and we still don't know where Tim got the money to buy a diamond, but he found it somewhere, <clears throat> proposed, and she accepted. And then Tim came home the end of 91, <clears throat> after two years in Botswana, and two weeks later, married his Sandy in New York City. Now, Sandy was a Pentecostal, dancing, singing beauty. She was everything Tim wasn't. But together, they were an incredible pair. Sandy's parents were not happy about the thought of them even thinking about going back to Botswana. And uh, about a year later, Sandy got pregnant, and Sandy's mom said, Oh, thank goodness, get this nonsense of Botswana out of their heads now. And a week later said, No, we're still going. And then there was sadness. <laughs> but they left for Botswana, and they went to an area in the Kalahari Desert and a village called Raycops. And it was tough. You think about the most severe camping week you've ever had in your life, and you multiply that by week after week after week, and that's how they lived. Now, Jim, uh, Tim had learned along the way that there was a guy in England back in the Industrial Revolution by the name of George Mueller, and George Mueller was, was just horrified by the thousands of orphans who were running the streets of the big cities in England. <clears throat> And so he started orphanages all over the place, and he had a principle of never asking for any money, and God would supply the needs of making sure those orphans had food to eat. And Tim would say, if George Mueller could do it, I can do it too. And I'd say to him, Tim, do you want me to start some fundraising? No, he said, God knows what we need. Don't worry about that. God will take care of us. Now, when we had gone to India, 
we went under a mission board and they provided sort of the basics of what we needed. We didn't get rich on it, but our, our basic needs were met and we didn't worry about how we would live and what we would need. And we thought that was pretty easy to work with. And here's our son, Tim, just stretching me all to pieces, saying, God will take care of me. He had tried to get a bit of life insurance before he went to Botswana. When they found out and heard that he was going to live in the Kalahari, nobody would touch him, not even CCC, the four C's of Elmira, the Christian charities, wouldn't touch him. He said, God will take care of me. Don't worry, Dad. Things will be okay. And out they went in 93, 94. A little baby was born by the name of Serena on the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter. Now, I don't know how you do this, but two years later, on the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter, her brother Jake was born, and they had these two beautiful babies. They were working with indigenous churches in Botswana, and at this time in Botswana, it was full of HIV, and people were just dying all over the place, and they spent a lot of time going to funerals. Tim hooked up with the local hospitals, and he would do all kinds of things in sort of uh, using object lessons to show that what you need is to stay with one woman and not run around and spread this thing, and uh, had a lot of work with that as well as with theology and with teaching. We kept worrying this poor guy's going to pick up HIV over there because of all the contacts, and it was just rampant. A whole generation of Botswana was wiped out with kids then being raised by their grandparents. Spring of 96, Tim and Sandy returned to Canada with two small children. Jake was about six months old. Serena was a little over two two and a half, and we had delightful family times together. We'd go across camping, which I'm not sure our directions here at the Pinery, and we had good times sharing family things, and it was a wonderful time. Fall of 96, Tim says, we're going back to Botswana and we're going to be changing gears and we're going to be going to a Bible school on the edge of the Kalahari where it's not quite so dusty and dirty and dry. <clears throat> a little town called Francistown just on the eastern part of Botswana. And so they went and got involved with a Bible school with teachers from Australia and from England and from New Zealand and they fit in there and they just had a really a great time of, of ministry and of developing uh, classes for people who couldn't come and take them at the school. And it was uh, a great time for them to be there. The country in many ways was, uh, was responding. And Tim and his buddy John Walters had a, a vision for the country that was outstanding. They had visited the churches, they had visited the schools, and they, uh, and they thought they should call them all together and have a plan for what to do and what to say and how to proceed 
with their time at the school. And so in September, there was a great conference called for the capital city of Haberoni in Botswana. And they called all of the church leaders and all of the mission leaders. And uh, Tim and John Walters together decided they would uh, present their plan and see what God would do in the school and in their lives. September 24th, they left their home in Francistown and headed south. There's a main drag through the eastern part of Botswana that goes from Haberone straight up to Zimbabwe, Bulawayo, and, uh, and that part. Two hours down that road, as they were heading toward the capital city, a truck passed another truck, hit their car, totally demolished it, and Tim and Sandy and Jake were all killed. Somehow, the little girl Serena survived. And we got a phone call later on on the 24th of September, and the phone rang and I answered and said, are you the father of Timothy Cober? And he said it three times. And I was getting faint by then because I knew something had happened. And it was the president of the school calling us to tell us that Tim and Sandy and Jake and a pastor from their local church had all been killed in that accident. There was some consternation in our family. We had worked in India with the understanding that when you trusted God and did God's work and God's calling, he would take care of you. And we couldn't quite figure out what was going on. Tim was 29 years old, Sandy was 30, Jake was 18 months. Serena was all beat up with serious injuries. And what do you do? Our first thought, let's go to Botswana and see what we can do to help. The American ambassador in Botswana called me the next day and said, listen, I know exactly what you're going through. I've been through it myself. I will step in and take care of all of the details and we'll take care of Serena and make sure she's taken care of and we'll get her back home safely. Well, to make a long story short, after being stabilized for about eight days, Serena flew from Johannesburg, London, Toronto, and ended up at SickKids. She couldn't get on the plane in London until we guaranteed there was an ambulance at the airport in Toronto and all of those arrangements were made. She flew in on October the 3rd, nine broken bones all smashed up and after a week in sick kids she came back to us with both legs both arms full body cast for eight weeks i'll never forget holding this little girl three years old and it was like holding a board and we took care of her before tim and sandy had gone back they had made provision for people to take care of their children if in the event of something horrendous would happen. 
And so Sandy's sister and her husband in New York State were the ones who would provide the home and the care for her after the cast was off at Sick Kids. And so that was followed through and happened. I'll just mention one thing quickly about how she got back. The trucking industry was so shattered by what had happened in this accident that within three days they had raised 49,000 US dollars. Now most of these are Muslims and Hindus. But they knew and understood what Tim and Sandy were doing and how they lived in the village and how they spoke their language and they just gathered together and so Serena, on her way back from Johannesburg, London, Toronto, had eight seats that she had to pay for, four folded down. She was on a stretcher, an IV and all the rest of it, plus two other people who came with her as medical people. And that was all paid for by the trucking industry in Botswana. Well, that was just one little story of how God provided in amazing ways. That little girl has grown up. She's the wife of a youth pastor in North Carolina today. And let me just share briefly one little thing that really touched us. Her final year at university, a Christian university in Phoenix, Pennsylvania, the president of the school said he was going to share a chapel service and uh, we happened to follow on Zoom and listen as the president talked about what God does with what's left over. It's a powerful sermon, and he called Serena up and told the student body the story of Tim and Sandy. Now, we still don't know all of the, or we still don't have answers for all of the questions we have about that because it raised so many questions in so many ways. But through all of this, we have learned how to walk with God. Martin Luther walked with God. Tim walked with God in a different way. And I want to turn now to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And we want to read a couple of verses at the beginning of Hebrews 12. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Did you know you're in a race? Let us walk the race with perseverance in the race marked out for us. 1983, there was a great marathon race in Australia. My apologies to Irvin Early, you've heard this before. It's an incredible story. I'll just be very, very brief. I know my time is all gone already. It was a race from Sydney to Melbourne. Seven, 875 kilometers. Can you imagine a race like that? And these guys would train professional runners. And uh, 1983, 
10 professional runners with all their latest shoes and gadgets were there. And then a guy ambled up in his overalls and his <laughs> rubber boots. <clears throat> he said, I'm going to join the race. They found out this guy was 61 years old. <clears throat> the other guys were in their 20s. <clears throat> and uh, the press just laughed. And they said, this old geezer, he's not going to do anywhere except to embarrass himself. <clears throat> But Cliff Young said, I think I'll just enter the race anyhow. And he paid his fee, got his number, and the gun went off, and off they ran. And within minutes, Cliff was left in the dust. But nobody knew in the press that Cliff had 2,000 sheep over 2,000 acres, and he never had a tractor or a horse. And when his sheep got lost, Cliff simply walked and walked and walked and found them. And when there was a storm, Cliff went out and got his sheep in and took care of them. And Cliff knew how to walk. Well, three days later, when the press caught up with Cliff Young, they said, when are you going to sleep? He said, sleep? I didn't come to sleep. I come to run a race. All the other guys would sleep six hours each night and then run the rest of the time. Cliff said, oh, I didn't know about that. I'll just keep on walking. The fifth day, Cliff passed all the fast guys while they were sleeping and ended up at the destination and sat down and said, where are the other guys? The second guy appeared 10 hours later. He had broken the record. Oh, he said, I didn't know there was a prize, $10,000. Well, he said, I don't need it. I'll give it to the other runners. And so he did. <laughs> Cliff Young became a hero in Australia because he knew how to walk with perseverance. We have a race to walk. And I call it the Christian shuffle. It's called the cliff shuffle in marathon running. The Christian shuffle keeps us moving toward the goal day after day, day after day, and not stopping until we get home. <clears throat> now, sometimes we need to be reminded that this is not our home. We are strangers and aliens. This is preparation time for the real life which starts when we hit our real eternal life in the next world. How do we walk? We walk the shuffle of perseverance and continuing on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us in difficult times and in good times in storms and in good weather, in sunshine and in snow, we keep on walking. We keep on walking with our eyes fixed on Jesus. And Lord, give us faith and courage and strength to not give up, to not grow weak, but keep on walking with you. Thank you. Thank you for walking with us and being the great, great shepherd of the flock. Thank you for loving us this morning. Amen.